Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to John, John chapter 2. Last week we began looking at this section, talking about marriage. Today we'll finish looking at this miracle of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. His first public miracle, His first announced miracle, seems to indicate that this is the first miracle that Jesus performed because it tells us in the passage this, the first of His signs. Jesus did at Cain in Galilee and it manifested His glory. That would seem to indicate to us that this is the first because the word sign, obviously referring to why Jesus did miracles, they were to testify Something about who he is wasn't to be a sideshow. It was out of compassion for people, but it was more than that. It was to manifest his glory. His disciples believed in him. Let's look at the text real quickly. We'll look to the Lord in the word of prayer. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Notice there, it doesn't say Mary. It says the mother of Jesus. It's interesting. John, in John's Gospel, never mentions Mary by name, always referring to her simply as the mother of Jesus. Just something of note. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, this little group of men that he has been calling around himself to follow him. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. She doesn't walk away. She doesn't like turn tail and be like, in faith, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification. Each of these six stone water jars, they're different sizes, but each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine somewhere in between. He didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn out the water knew. The master of the feast called to the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. You've kept the good stuff till now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee manifesting his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. They stayed there a few days. 
Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we give this time to you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, we ask that the words that you have given us here in this book, our Bible, written by John, that they would come alive in our heart today, that they would bring forth fruit, they would change us, they would mold us, they would equip us, that, Holy Spirit, you would enable us, your people, to follow you more faithfully, that we, your disciples, would believe in you as we see your glory manifested, that believing in you, we too would bring glory to you. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus was invited to the wedding. I also thought I could call this message this morning a wedding gift from Jesus. A wedding gift from Jesus. Man, 120 to 100 ga- 180 gallons of wine. That's some gift. I mean, that's a lot of wine. Six stone water pots somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons, all of them, once water, now wine. That's some gift. It's a grace gift. This couple didn't deserve it. For some reason, there was a lack. Jesus met the need in answer to the request of his mother. And all these things are important as we look at the text this morning. There are two actions in stark contrast. I made made us think about this for a few minutes last week. Next week we will move on in the chapter and we will see Jesus cleansing the temple. It's interesting that at the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry, Jesus cleansed the temple. The first time he does it, he takes people by surprise. The second time he does it, He makes them so mad, they kill him. And both of those cleansings happen in preparation for Passover. It's interesting when we study this and we go through the text, we will see that one of the important things that always happened in relationship to a preparation for Passover was every Jewish household had to cleanse their home. And they cleansed their home from all the yeast that could be in it. And it was an important function of preparation for Passover. So Jesus here, the Lord of the house, cleanses the temple, His house, in preparation for His celebration of the Passover. Now, these two actions are in stark contrast because the one we see this morning exemplifies to us the kindness of our Savior. And then the other one, we will see His severity. This one is a private crisis that was the result of lack. We mentioned this last week. We have no idea why they ran out of wine. It doesn't say. Was it because they were poor and they just didn't get enough? Was it because extra guests showed up? Was it because poor planning? We don't know. The text nowhere says. Mary just comes to Jesus and says they have no wine. 
Now, this would have resulted in social stigma and ridicule, but nothing else. Nobody would have lost their life. Nobody would have lost their job. No, people would have walked away from it talking about it. People would have been kind of huffy. But it would have only brought social stigma and ridicule. And in that situation, Jesus nevertheless cared for this couple enough that he intervenes in their life. And he meets their need. And as I said last week, this is a reminder to us that we are to cast all our cares on the Lord. He cares for them. He wants the big things and the little things. He's got the whole world in his hands. And we need to talk to him about every need in our life. When the wine runs out, we don't just turn to the bank and ask for more money. We turn to our Lord and ask for his help. God intervenes. So cast all your cares on him. He cares for you. Last week we talked about marriage. Now, I don't want to take a lot of time with this this morning. We're just going to run through it again by way of reminder, and then we get to the text. But we talk about what is marriage. Jesus was invited to the wedding. This is an institution of God. It is not a civil contract. We talked about that last week and why that is so important. We understand it. It is a covenant relationship between one man, one woman for life. That is what the Bible says marriage is. We talked about the reality that not all of us And for many of us, this subject is a painful one. Your experience has not been the experience that I have had. Um, I am so blessed by the wife that the Lord has given to me and the marriage that we have had and the home that we've been able to create together. Some people have not experienced that. We're not here to denigrate you. We're here to help you. We're here to teach, though. We want our young people to understand what marriage is. It is a covenant relationship. It is between a man and a woman, one man, one woman, and it is for life. It is a comprehensive union that is ordered toward the procreation of children and the establishment of a home. These are all things that we talked about last week. We talked about various questions, you know, what is marriage? We talked about, you know, is there a biblical wedding ceremony? We said no. There are unbiblical ones, but there's no biblical one. There's no place in the Bible where you find a marriage ceremony written out. God's given us great latitude in designing marriages. Who is responsible to regulate? Who can marry? We talked about why or why not, when should I attend a wedding, and I don't want to go into all that stuff this morning. You know, we talked about this one, is attendance at a wedding seen as an endorsement of the union. You can go back, (coughs) find that message if you want to see what I said about all those things last week. It is an important subject, and one we need to prepare our thinking for, but I don't want to digress and take time with it again today. However, this week had a dilemma in very in relationship to this very thing. The question, who should regulate a marriage? Whose responsibility is it to decide when someone can marry? And I'll just show you where this panned out this week. There's a bill that's being um, debated down in Cheyenne this week. It was last week. It's gone through the House. It's at the Senate now regarding underage marriage. And so the question is, you know, Who is the responsibility to decide at what age somebody should be able to marry? 
Should parents be able to decide that their 15-year-old can marry? Or should the state? It's a dicey question. Now, I thought this would be pretty simple. For me, I don't want medical practitioners in our state telling a 15-year-old that they can change their gender and that they'll help them. Why? Because they're underage. I don't even want a parent to be able to decide that one. I want the state to say, no, you're a minor. That same logic holds true to me in regard to marriage. But you know what I found? In the WPN, there was no unanimity on this one. Boy, it left, some, left open some freewheeling debate on what this means and why and who and when. And so this is something that's being wrestled with even on a state level. It will be interesting to me. really going to be interesting to me see where it lands tomorrow down in Cheyenne when they call this to a vote in the Senate. You know, is it going to go forward or not? I actually, even though I think it's a good thing, I actually hope they kill it. The reason I hope they kill it is because I think everybody needs to think about it. There's been no debate on it. There's been no thought given to it. And it's not really a problem in the state of Wyoming. You don't see a lot of 15-year-olds getting married. Having said that, I think it's a good thing. I think the marital marriage age should be 16 and 17 with consent of the parents and a judge. And 18, you can make your own choice. That's just me. But anyway... Having said that, we're not going to get into a debate on that today. But it just shows when we wrestle with these things, when you start asking questions about them, there's some really strong feelings and really strong opinions about these issues. And like I said last week, you know, people have their feelings tied up into these situations. And so it creates a lot of dilemmas sometimes for us as Christians as we wrestle through them. And uh, so we need to think about it carefully. We need to think about it scripturally. And then we need to be gracious with those with whom we disagree, um, even though we may hold our opinion very strongly. As we move away from marriage, I want to, you know, I talked to you young people last week because I told you I want you to understand what marriage is. Today I want to tell you some things about marriage and how to have a good one. This is directed to young people although it's good for all of us to have a reminder. But young people, I want you to think about some things. I don't want, want you to only think about what marriage is. I want to give you just a little bit of advice today when you think about the time when God brings the right person to you. And I hope it's not at the age of 15. Although I don't care if you meet him when you're 15, but I hope you wait till you're 18. First thing is this. Young people, marriage isn't so much finding the right person as it is being the right person. Here's what I mean by that. At this stage in your life, young people, concentrate on character. Concentrate on character. If you want to marry well, I thank the Lord that God was very gracious to me, by the way, as I already said. My wife is not my better half. She's my better two-thirds. I mean, I married up when it goes to the pay grade. I mean, God blessed me with a wife. 
marriage isn't so much, you know, don't spend all your life, you know, fretting about finding the right person. God will bring you the right person. As a father, I fretted a bit about it for my kids. I'll admit it. But God brought them both the right person in his time. I remember when Amy and I moved to Star Valley back in the 90s. We left Cody and came here. Church was really small then. Young people, if you're in the high school right now, you feel like as a born-again Christian, you're in the minority. I guarantee you in the 90s, you were like in the basement. There were not Christians here. And Mamie and I looked at that and thought, well, God, how are we ever going to find a believer for our kids? And it was the wrong truth. It was the wrong thing to say. It wasn't me finding a believer for my kids. It was God would bring them. And God did. Marriage, young people, is not so much finding the right person as it is being the right person. Like attracts like. Young people, you will never find, if you're a woman or you're a man, girls, you will never find a godly man who is going to care for you and love you like Christ if you live like the devil. He won't be attracted to you. Young men, you're not going to find a godly girl who is virtuous and loves the Lord if you live like the devil. Character counts. At this stage in your life, young people, put all your effort into building your life to the glory of God and put Him first. And all these things will be added to you. Second thing is this. Don't marry the person you think you can live with. Marry the person you know you can't live without. Do you remember... Back in the dark ages, people, when you were struggling with whether or not, guys, think about it, you're struggling, should I ask this person to marry me? How do you know? Girls, you know the question's coming. You know it's inevitable. And you know you're going to have to answer it. Yes or no? Did you say yes just because of peer pressure? Just because you thought you should? Don't marry the person you think you can live with. Marry the person you know you can't live without. You will have trouble. You will have problems. Like the old adage is, you know, we should end every wedding with the old hymn, the fight is on. You know, I mean, it's just like, I mean, there are times. Don't marry the person you just think you can live with. You won't live with them very long. It takes more than that. Marry the person you know you can't live without, and it will be okay. My dad, my wise dad, used to say a couple things. He used to say, I remember him specifically telling me this on several occasions. One time, I'll, I'll tell you this, i got to get preaching in the text, but when we were in college, I wanted to ask my wife, my now wife, to marry me. Felt like, but I, I mean, I had cold feet. And I didn't know what to do. And rather than talking to my dad about it, I broke up with Amy. 
like a dummy. Can you believe that? You can all hang up. You can all smack me at the door. I broke up with her. She took me back. What a bum. But I, I remember calling my dad and telling him, you know, I'm just in so much turmoil. I don't know if this is God's choice for me. I had this messed up idea. Some of you young people have it too. That, you know, if you serve God, God wants you to be miserable. And so I thought, well, since I love her and I really enjoy her, then God probably doesn't want me to be with her. I mean, think of how stupid that logic is. I, I needed somebody in my life to speak wisdom to me because I was dumb. So I just broke up with her. I called my dad, and he was like, you did what? And he chewed me out, upside, one down, down the other, and he said, you crawl back to her and ask her to take you back, you bum. Which I did, for which I am eternally grateful. Because it changed my life. I held my wife last night when we were getting ready to pray for dinner, and I just said, I am so thankful that the Lord gave me you. But my dad used to tell me this. He'd say, the two most important decisions in your life are this. This is true for every one of us. Whether or not, first one, you ask the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from sin. That is the most important decision any one of us can make. You fail to make that decision, you will be miserable for eternity. My dad looked me in the face and told me that. I remember him doing it. And then he said, the second most important decision you'll ever make is this, who you marry. Because if you get that one wrong, you won't be miserable for eternity, but you will be miserable for your whole life. So get it right. Young people, this, by the way, is why I think it's important for kids not to marry. The most important decision you will make outside of your eternal salvation is who you marry. Choose wisely. Character counts. Trust your parents. Your dad may just chew you out, too. Okay, to the text. A private crisis, a woman's request, a Messiah's reply, an amazed inner circle, and a closing contrast. This is where we go this morning for just a few minutes. In this miracle, God is at work behind the scenes. Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to him. And says to him, they're out of wine. And God behind the scenes is at work. We see God answering the request of his children. And he does so for his own glory. It manifests his glory. We see the world at large benefiting from what he does. Mary asks, God moves, and the party goes on, and the world is oblivious. But his disciples know, and his disciples believe in him. This is exactly what happens in the world. 
There are crises all around us. There are problems in our lives and in the lives of others. God's people go to Jesus and take those needs to Him. Jesus hears them. Jesus answers. Jesus intervenes. And the world, by and large, is clueless. The world at large doesn't care. The world at large is just happy. There's plenty of wine. But his disciples believe it. That is the beauty of this miracle. It is a private crisis. Now, we don't know exactly how long this wedding feast went on. There is no law, there again, in the Torah that says, when you have your wedding ceremony, then make sure it goes for a full seven days. We know when they held Passover. We know when they, fe- when they held the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We know when they did the Feast of Tabernacles. They were seven-day feasts. They would gather, they would celebrate, they would have a good time, they would worship the Lord, and they were protracted periods where God's people would gather. In a similar way, it was fairly traditional that wedding ceremonies would go on for seven days, but they didn't have to. They could have gone on for four days, they could have gone on for five days, they could have gone on for the week. We do know they would have gone on only so long that people who have traveled could have returned a Sabbath day's journey so that they could not have to do that, go distances on the Sabbath. And so they were somewhere within the week. There's no law, but perhaps it is a protracted feast of seven days. And in that period of time, many people have come, probably many people have gone, and the wine has run out. I don't want to take a lot of time to talk about the wine and the issue of wine. Uh, You know, we could digress into a whole message on wine and what it is. It's the fruit of the vine. This is around Passover. Grapes in Palestine are harvested in August and September. So the wine that they had been drinking was made from grapes that had been picked, you know, what, seven, eight months prior It's been fermented. It is wine. It's not grape juice. Let's not fool ourselves. There's no refrigeration. And that's the culture. That's what they're dealing with. Jesus turns the water into wine. There's not a change of terminology there. Um, But in all those things, when we think about wine, um, It's also interesting to think, this is around Passover, so Jesus kicks off his ministry at Passover and he ends his ministry at Passover. Just like I talked about with the cleansing of the temple. Passover is very important to Jesus. We'll look at that later as we study Passover. But when we think about the wine, you know, wine was hoarded carefully because it had to last a year. Picture grapes, August, September, You made your wine. Uh, You couldn't go to Walmart. You maybe could buy some from the wine merchant, but people weren't cash rich in this society. It was an agrarian society where most people lived by the fruit of the land that they worked themselves. So they hoarded it carefully. 
because it had to last them a year. They used it sparingly to disinfect water because they would add it to water to disinfect it. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, you know, don't be a dummy. Use a little wine for your stomach's sake. You, you keep getting all these GI infections and you have intestinal problems. You know, don't abstain from wine to disinfect the water because you're getting sick, Timothy. That's what Paul is saying there. And so that was one of the main uses of wine just in everyday life. They used it to disinfect water. But then when special occasions came, they used it and they drank freely of it. And we see that here. And so the wine runs out. Uh, There's one note I could make. God loves a good party. God loves a good party. Jesus is not some curmudgeon who is like, you know, mad because people are having a good time and they're happy and it's joyful. He's not, God is not a God who stifles our laughter. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it does tell us it's better to go to the, fe- the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's telling us that for a very specific reason. When I go to the house of mourning, I am reminded that I too must die. And that someday they're going to be carrying me out in the casket. And so it affects the way I live. So he says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. But nevertheless, when you look at Scripture, you see Jesus was a God, is a God who enjoyed a good time, who enjoyed being with friends, who enjoyed being with family, and he enjoyed a good party. He was actually, think about this, he was actually accused of being a drunkard because he was a friend of sinners. That was the accusation. You know, we should have enough of old grumpy religion. God does not want that for his children. The Old Testament prescribed feasts and festivals that were celebrations. It's interesting to note, we often get this like churchy view of the tithe. Read the Old Testament sometime and study what the tithe was. There was one specific tithe that was a budget category for every family. And it was their party fund. That's what it was. It says specifically in the text, what you do with that 10% is you set it aside, and then once a year you throw a big party, and you use that fund to fund your party. And you rejoice before me. Study it out. God had the Jewish people build into their personal budget a fund to rejoice before him in feast and festival. Um, God loves a good party, though. Not a sinful one. Drunkenness, promiscuity, many parties lead into loose speech and loose living. And God is not glorified, God is denigrated, and God is angry. 
God does not love a bad party, but God does love a good one. So the next time you have a party, make sure it's a good one. Make sure it glorifies Him. Now let's go on. A woman's request. She shows remarkable trust. Doesn't she? She shows remarkable trust. He's never done a miracle before. What is she expecting? I don't know. Did she just, was she just so used to him being her guy to go to to fix problems? You know, ladies, you got him. It's your guy, your handyman husband, who can fix anything. Who, whenever there's a problem, he just knows what to do. For your, your widows, it may be a son. And so when something happens, you just go to him. So Mary goes to him, they don't have any wine. What is she expecting? I don't know. Now, Jesus and Mary always have had this relationship that's a mystical thing that's hard to understand because she's seen a lot, right? She's had an angel come to her and say, what's going to be born of you is of the Holy Spirit. She's a virgin. How can this be? And then she has shepherds come. And then there's these magi that come from the east and worship him. And then when he's 12 years old, he disappears in the temple. And they just go their way to go home at Passover, and they can't find him. Have you ever had that deal where you got in the car and you went home from church and you looked in the back seat and your kids weren't there? And you said, glory to God, we get a free lunch. Somebody else will bring them home. Right, where's Jesus? Where is Jesus? They go back and they find him. They are upset. They have been worried. Where have you been? (coughs) Didn't you know? I must be about my father's business. Jesus has always had this relationship that is remarkable with his family. Nevertheless, we see the Lord replying to her and building her faith. What does this have to do with me? It's an interesting comeback. He's not saying, I don't want to do this. But but he's asking a question. Jesus, so many times when people came to him, would come back at them with a question. Like, what is this all about? Let's get down into what's really going on here. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. No, there's a lot of mystery in what Jesus is saying there. That phrase, my hour has not yet come, he uses it in John to talk about the hour of his death, the hour that he glorifies his Father. My hour has not yet come. What does that have to do with me? And she, rather than like being like, ah, oh, what does he mean by that? He didn't say yes, he didn't say no. What does he mean? She just turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Remarkable face. Now, why does he say woman? Now, this is interesting. This isn't like I kind of alluded to last week. He's not being snarky with her. Guys, kids, don't ever be snarky with your mom. I mean, that was one sure way for me to get a tanning when I was a kid. And it wasn't like being out in the sun. It was a tanning down below the sun line, you know. Don't be snarky with mom. Jesus is not being snarky. 
when, in this culture, when a man spoke to his father, they spoke Aramaic, he would call him what? His Abba. He would do that in public. When a man spoke to his mother in Aramaic, in public, he would call her his Ema. And that was common. So why doesn't he say, Mom? Mom, what does this have to do with me? Why does he say woman? Now, Jesus uses this same term when he's hanging on the cross. And he says to John, I want you to take care of my mother. He says, woman, behold your son. Is he just telling her, look at me, here I am on the cross? What is he saying? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Woman, look at me. You bore me. You changed my diapers. You fed me. But if you want to go to heaven, you need to look to me. Mary needed a Savior. What he's saying to her is this. Woman, he is signaling to her their relationship has just changed. She does not get special privileges because she is his mom. Your prayer matters to Jesus as much as Mary's. Your prayer, Mary's, matters as much to Jesus as much as Peter's prayers. There's no special favoritism because of relationship, earthly relationship. I have a whole big part of that in my notes because there's certain branches of Christendom that teaches come to Jesus through Mary because she, like, gets a better deal. So say your Hail Marys. You know what? There's no teaching of that in the Bible. None. The Bible teaches there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and we have access to God through Jesus and Him alone. My friend, you don't need me. I want to pray for you, but you don't need me to pray for you. You don't need Matt to pray for you. It's not like when you've got a big problem, you've got to find somebody extra spiritual to get it to God for you, and that if they ask, then God will listen. No, we're willing to pray, and we want to pray for you, and there is power in prayer, and corporate prayer is important. But my friend, know this. When you pray, if you pray in Jesus' name, He hears. I don't care who you are. I don't care how poor you are, how rich you are. He hears. And so Jesus acts. And it causes amazement and it causes wonder. And His glory is revealed. Have you ever seen something that was like, wow, what was that? Have you ever had one of those things? And it's just unexplicable. The other night, Thursday night, Amy and I were in the house. My son called. He was out hunting coyotes. Cold night. What's he doing out there in the snow? Shooting coyotes. He calls. He says, you've got to go out and look at this. I don't know. Did any of you see that Thursday night? Western Horizon, over here, there was a line of lights. Did you see that? Boom. Boom, perfectly spaced, 
perfect straight line from like almost over my house to Cal Peak. It was freaky. And they were there for 10 minutes, and then they just went bye-bye. It was freaky. I mean, we went out there, and I, I was like, okay, whatever. You've been coyote hunting too long. So I go out there, look, holy cow, dear, you got to look at this. I mean, straight as an arrow. Now, go online and try to look it up. It's the kind of thing people are seeing because of Elon Musk's Starlink thing. Somehow the sunlight grabs it and does this thing. But uh, whatever. When you see it, you'll be like, what is that? Because it's amazing. What was that? I went to bed, and all I could think about, what was that? Was that like Chinese, you know, something in the sky because of the sky balloon? You know, and now they're going to drop a nuclear bomb on my house because it was like right there. You know, I'm like, what was that? I was amazed. It was all I could think about. These people, these servants, filled jars with water. They take out a dipper. They take it to the master of the feast. And he drinks wine. What was that? Who did that? I cannot account for that. I don't understand this. It caused amazement. It caused wonder. And it begot faith. He is the Messiah. He is a God who works wonders. He is a wonder-working God. The wonder of wonders is this, that he would love me a sinner, that he would die for me. The beginning of the book of John, we see this contrast laid out where John says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus. This is one place where we see this amazing contrast. The first of the plagues that Moses did was he takes water and he turns it into blood as a sign of judgment. God is a God who will judge. The first of the miracles that Jesus does, does is he takes water and he turns it into wine to show us joy, to give us joy. That is in him. Let's be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that, Lord, you would help us to set our faith upon you to look to you with every need we have. Lord, there's young people in this room that are wondering, Lord, who is that person that you have for me? And they, they want to build a home someday to your glory, and they want to get married. And they're like, God, what is this going to look like, and who is this going to be? Help them, Lord, to just rest in your sovereign hand. There are people in this room that don't know how they're going to pay their bills. They don't know... how to work with a kid who's gone astray, living in sin, who's rejected you. We all have problems. 
Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would teach us to bring them to you and to give them to your care. So I pray in Jesus' name.